Welcome back, Bible readers. This is the Rooted Podcast, and this is week number 19. This week, we're going to be reading 1 Chronicles chapter 10, verse 1 through 29, verse 30, which is all of 1 Chronicles. So we'll finish up 1 Chronicles this week. Also, I think this week that you have a day off, and that is a rarity in our Bible reading plan. So use that time wisely. Use that time to catch up if you need to. Now, after last week's genealogy, I'm sure you're ready to get back into the storyline. Remember, 1 Chronicles is very similar in content to 1 and 2 Samuel. And remember, 1 Chronicles will purposely highlight different parts to the story. And a good study Bible will create a harmony for you of 1 and 2 Samuel with 1 Chronicles if you wanted to compare the different details in each storyline. Today we'll start with 1 Chronicles 10, and this begins with Saul. This chapter is largely based on 1 Samuel 31, and it provides a backdrop for the portrayal of David. Saul was the king that the people had demanded. Saul failed to submit to God's ways, and a simple assessment of his reign is found in verses 13 and 14. Godly leadership is characterized by complete obedience to the Lord and by seeking guidance from him in faith. However, Saul failed on both accounts. Now, as you get into chapters 11 and 12, they are concerning the secession of David. That story is much more detailed and expansive here than it is in 2 Samuel chapter 5. And we're told that all of Israel came to Hebron to recognize David's kingship. All the elders anointed him as king. David captured Jerusalem with ease and made it his capital city. He was able to do this easily because verse 9 of chapter 11 says, The Lord was with him, a recurring phrase you'll find. But he was also able to do this because of the men that surrounded him. Evidence of David's greatness is also seen in the stories of his heroic exploits of the men who followed him and helped him along the way. The name of more than 30 of these warriors appear in the list of David's mighty men toward the end of chapter 11. But not all of David's mighty men were from his own tribe of Judah. In fact, some of Saul's own Benjamite kinsmen joined David, as chapter 12 tells us. Others also joined David from the northern tribes of Gad, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Ephraim, Issachar, Zebulun, Naphtali, Dan, Asher, and all the Transjordan tribes as well. In other words, the text is trying to tell us here that we're left with the impression that the whole nation rallied around their new king. The leaders of these men came from the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, and of course, these two tribes, as we've learned, make up the southern kingdom. Now, to the author of Chronicles, David's greatest achievement was the establishment of Israel's worship. Therefore, the next major part of David's life that is highlighted is David's initial attempt to bring the ark to Jerusalem. In chapter 13, we find that the ark had been housed at Kirath-Jerim through the years of Saul. But now David had built a tabernacle for it in Jerusalem, and he wanted to put the ark in it. And so on the way to Jerusalem, the ark was mishandled, however. A man named Uzzah laid his hand on the ark to steady it, and because he touched the ark, the Lord killed him instantly. Now, because of what happens, David had to postpone any additional efforts to bring the ark to Jerusalem at that current time. But before David's efforts to retrieve the ark, in chapter 14, he had struck a deal with Hiram of Tyre to build a royal palace for David. David also had a large harem, many children, victories over his foreign enemies, especially his nemesis, the Philistines. The Lord had endorsed David as king, something that all the nations around Israel came to recognize as well. And so you can see how even now, and we're going to see it all the way to the end of chapter 29, the chronicler here in 1 Chronicles in this major section is concerned with showing how great and how fantastic David was for the nation of Israel to be their king. 
If you move into chapter 15, the story goes back to the ark. The installation of the ark into the tabernacle in Jerusalem was a major event. This time, David recognizes the need for proper protocol in transportation of the ark. The right people, the Levites, would be the one to transport it. Along this grand procession, there were musicians and singers praising and glorifying God for this event. There were sacrifices made by the Levites as well, and David was also wearing his priestly garments. Now, did you catch that? David was also able to offer sacrifices as well. But how is this possible? Because he is not a priest from the order of Aaron. Remember, Saul got in trouble for sacrificing because he wasn't a priest. Let me briefly explain, but know that we will take more time about this when we get to the book of Hebrews. Evidently, David offered sacrifice because he was a priest after the order of Melchizedek, fulfilling the provision of the Abrahamic covenant. Remember that the priesthood of Aaron was meant to mediate the Mosaic law. But here, David is functioning as a priest in the order of Melchizedek, who is not associated with the Mosaic law, but with the Abrahamic covenant. David realized he was the king promised to the patriarchs for whom Israel had been looking. Now, when we get to the book of Hebrews, we'll talk more about Melchizedek. In chapter 16, we find that David personalizes God's blessings on Israel by giving each participant bread, meat, and fruits, which were all representatives of fruitfulness. This event, bringing the ark into Jerusalem, marked the beginning of the Levitical singer's ministry within Israel. God's presence in Israel's capital symbolized his leadership over the nation. Compare this to Michael's response, David's wife, at the end of chapter 15. She believed in a different concept of kingship, one where her father Saul was the ultimate authority. Now, among the musical selections that were sung that day were psalms either composed by David or someone else. If we were to read Psalms 96, Psalm 105, and Psalm 106, we would find striking similarities to this hymn in 1 Chronicles chapter 16. It seems that the chronicler collected portions of these psalms and organized them into this one grand hymn. Or maybe this one hymn was appropriated into different psalms later on. Whatever the case, those psalms we know have a specific reason as to why they are written and they can be located into a specific time in the life of David and Israel's worship. Now, in chapter 17, David is concerned that the ark of God needs a permanent place. So he desires to build a temple for it to reside in. But the Lord has other plans. Temple building was a peacetime pursuit. Instead, God would build David a house, that is, a dynasty, that would be stable and everlasting. This Davidic covenant would provide the way for a son of David, whose throne would be eternal. You also find this in 2 Samuel chapter 7. David's response to what the Lord will do for him is remarkable. And he goes in and sits before the Lord with humility and thankfulness, and he says these words. Listen to them as we read from the text. Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? And now, O God, in addition to everything else, you speak of giving your servant a lasting dynasty. You speak as though I were someone very great, O Lord God. What more can I say about the way that you have honored me? You know that your servant is what your servant is really like. Now, those words allow us to truly see what's in David's heart. And why would God want to honor such a man like him. This is what David is saying. You can read more of what David's prayer of thanks is in the text there in 1 Chronicles 17 
and verse 17 and following. But that just gives you an idea of what's in David's heart. He was truly thankful that God had blessed him. He couldn't build a house for the Lord, but guess what? Because of who David was and because of how he had honored God, God was going to build a house for him. Wow, that's such an amazing promise. The Lord had responded to David's request to build a temple by implying that such a thing could only be done when Israel's enemies were subdued. And so the accounts in chapters 18, 19, and 20 list the various various military engagements that David undertook as a man of war until the day when peace would prevail under the leadership of his son, Solomon. So he subdued the Philistines, the Moabites, and the Armenians in chapter 18. He defeated the persistent Ammonites in chapter 19 and the first part of chapter 20. Also in chapter 20, David had success against the Philistines despite their formidable size and strength. There's some pretty scary giants in that text, and you can read all about them at the end of chapter 20. But David's great success on the battlefield causes a pride problem. Believing that success had come from his human strength and ability, he decided to take a census of his military forces in chapter 21. Joab, one of David's nephews, tried to dissuade him, but nonetheless, David continued to number his forces, and he should have listened to Joab. This attitude of self-reliance displeased the Lord, who then offers David a choice of the punishment options. David wisely allowed the Lord to choose his punishment, and so God chose a pestilence rather than famine or war. But this was not just a slap on the wrist. 70,000 Israelites fell to this plague. Jerusalem itself was in danger of God's judgment as the angel of the Lord was standing, ready to strike down Jerusalem. But David and the leaders of Israel fall to the ground, and David tells the Lord that it's all his fault. The people are innocent. And God causes this angel of the Lord to temporarily stop. God further instructs David to build an altar on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite, the very place that he was standing. This threshing floor of Aruna was the place chosen by God to be the place of sacrifice and atonement for David's sin. This site is significant. When David prayed, the Lord answered his prayer by sending fire from heaven to burn up the altar. After God had received David's offering, God instructed the angel of the Lord to put his sword back in its sheath to stop further punishment. Now, the very first verse of chapter 22 is important because it says that The place for the future temple to be built is right here on the very spot that the sacrifice had been made. David is obviously following God's lead and following through with what God wanted and the site he chooses for his temple. Now note the place chosen for this temple connects with both divine grace and forgiveness following David's sin here and a divine encounter via the angel of the Lord. Also, this place is associated with God's hearing the prayers of those who seek him in humility and obedience. God heard the prayer of David and responded. Now, if we fast forward to 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, you'll read that next week. The site the temple was built on is said to be Mount Moriah, which is the same place, if you know your Old Testament, where Abraham was prepared to offer Isaac as a sacrifice in Genesis 22. So you put all this together, and you know that the temple site is very significant. And maybe that's why it's still fought over today in Israel. It's a location of propitiation. It's a location of divine grace and divine mercy. It's a location of divine presence, of prayer, of sacrifice, of forgiveness. I can't think of a better place to put the temple, can you? 
Now, chapters 22 through 29 are mainly about preparation for David's successor. And these chapters do not have a sustained parallel in the books of Samuel or Kings, so they are unique to 1 Chronicles. In chapter 22, we read that David's inability to build the temple did not diminish his desire and interest in the project as he begins to gather all the materials needed for the completion of the project. David carefully instructs Solomon that he must carry forward the project as a direct mandate from God. If Solomon remained faithful and obedient to the Lord, then the Lord would bless him greatly. David also turns to Israel's leaders and commands them to cooperate with Solomon in providing a temple for the Lord that was worthy of him. A temple and its services, all its ministries, is a massive project. And so, beginning now, the remainder of the text talks about this massive organizational project. Chapter 23 speaks about the enormous amount of personnel needed to run the day-to-day operations, thousands of people. David numbered the Levites and divides them into four groups and assigns them the tasks of overseeing the temple in general, serving as officers and judges, working as caretakers, and leading in worship through instrumental music. The text does not say specifically which group did which task, like it said with the tabernacle. The ministry of the Levites would begin a new phase, since they wouldn't have to tear down and set back up the temple like they did with the tabernacle. So from this point forward, the Levites would assist the priests in the maintenance of the temple and with all the acts of worship that would take place in the temple. So in a general sense, we could say that the Levites were to assist the priests in fulfilling their roles as God's mediators in the temple. Now, speaking of the priests, you move to chapter 24. The priests, which were descendants of Aaron, constituted only one branch of the larger Levitical family. And so David organized the priests into 24 groups. And according to 2 Chronicles 23, which we'll come to at a later time, they were to serve one week at a time. Now, we know that Zadok and Ahimelech served as high priests. Ahimelech served at the Jerusalem tabernacle David had set up until Zadok came in and replaced him. Zadok originally oversaw the tabernacle at Gibeon, but once the ark was brought to Jerusalem from Gibeon, Zadok took over for Ahimelech. Also, in the second half of chapter 24, the order of Levitical service is determined by casting lots, so it's showing that there is no no favoritism here. Every detail of temple service was extremely important to David. David lowered the age required for Levitical service from 30 to 20. He may simply have done this for practical purposes because there was a need for many more Levites under this new system of worship. And because music was so central to temple worship, David appointed the descendants of Asaph, Heman, and Jethun to lead the choirs and orchestras, both men and women participated according to the rotating schedule, similar to that which regulated the ministries of the priests and Levites. So in all, there were 288 musicians divided up into 24 groups, and the Hemanites made up half the groups, while Asaph and Jethuna, their, their family units, made up the other half. In chapter 26, we find more responsibilities delineated. There was a group of over 90 men who were gatekeepers, divided up into various groups with the duties of opening and closing the gates and guarding them. You had the east gate, the west gate, the south gate, the storehouse gate, the gate leading up to the temple, and the temple courtyard gate. Six gates in all, 24 guards on duty, 24 hours a day. Other Levites oversaw the temple treasury, much of which came from the spoils of war and the regular tithes and offerings from the people. There were also peace officers. 
and judges that served more secular purposes. The text says that the administration of the Israelite nation was divided into two administrative districts, east of the Jordan and west of the Jordan. Or before, if we remember getting into the promised land, we talked about being in the land and being outside the land. David did more organization as you continue in chapter 27. His army was divided into 12 divisions with 24,000 in each division. Each month, a new division takes over duty from the previous one. The tribal leaders were organized as well because while still the, quote, federal government of David was being organized, there were still tribal or what we might call state governments that needed structure. The rest of 27 is a list of royal officials, including treasurers over various collections and agricultural industries. Furthermore, David reserved positions of privilege and responsibility for family and friends, as chapter 27 concludes. Now, in chapter 28, David convenes a great assembly of all the royal officials and citizens to explain what lay ahead of them and what he expected of them. He first shares with them that he had already told his son Solomon, namely his desire to build the temple was going to be passed down to his son Solomon. However, David and his descendants would be blessed and divinely chosen to rule. So David then publicly turns over to Solomon the plans he had in mind for temple construction. Now this is interesting because verse 19 of this chapter indicates that the temple design was somehow passed down to him from the hand of the Lord. The whole building and everything in it must conform to this design. For in part and in whole, the temple would be a powerful, powerful significance. Let me read a quote that's quite significant kind of connects things for you here. The author says this, a problem in many churches today is the failure to recognize that corporate worship is an experience to be governed by a certain degree of order and propriety. David did not simply dream up the temple by his own imagination, nor could Solomon build the temple as he pleased. The very architecture of the place was intended to teach Israel important lessons about the glory and grandeur of the creator God that they served. Christian worship that does less should be called into serious question. Now, there's a principle here that's important. Let me explain it this way. The main difference here is the temple, which, like the tabernacle, had lots of symbolism that pointed to a person, a one who would come, the once and for all sacrifice that would eventually arrive on the scene. But on the other side of the Bible, where we live now in the New Testament, Christ, the once and for all sacrifice, has already come. And therefore, anything in the worship service that's that takes away from our focus on him and what he has done for us, we should seriously consider doing away with. Think of it this way. The reason the local church has two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, is because they're symbolic of what Christ, the once and for all sacrifice, has done for us. You got it? Okay, I'm done preaching for now. Let's get back to the text. In chapter 29, David appeals to the people to make financial contributions towards the construction of the temple. David had already made contributions, and the people follow his example, and they give willingly, and it causes David's heart to rejoice. In the second half of chapter 29, David offers a prayer of praise. These are likely the last official words of David, and in this prayer we find that David reminds the people that everything belonged to Israel's great God. This truth that everything belongs to God is the foundation of what we call stewardship. Secondly, David also saw a parallel between Israel's growth and God's elevation of him. Israel's prosperity was not because of her merits. No, not at all, but because of God's grace. 
and thousands of burnt offerings were sacrificed, and the people joined David in eating and drinking around the festive table. David had previously installed Solomon as his co-regent, but now, knowing he was about to die, he turned over to Solomon the full responsibilities of government. On Solomon's accession, the intense loyalty of the people towards David was immediately transferred to Solomon. Now, it's interesting to note here that we often give Solomon all the credit for the magnificence of the temple. But really, all the credit belongs to David, who did everything. And I mean everything. Have you read the text? (laughs) He's done everything to make this temple a reality for Solomon. The only thing David hasn't done is put a hammer to a chisel and build the thing. He has done everything and has given it over to his son Solomon to build. The last part of chapter 29 is the chronicler's summary of David's reign. The chronicler highlighted David's greatness again and cited his documentation of sources used in researching David's life and reign. So as we end 1 Chronicles and we finish up for this week, you see that 1 Chronicles is mainly about David and about his rule and his reign and what he did to set up the temple for Solomon to build. So next week, we'll begin 2 Chronicles, and that's where we'll pick up our reading on the reign of Solomon. Email any questions to you have at BibleReadingLMBC.org, and I will talk with you all next week.